Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. A while back, I told you how I'd found an unmarked box on my doorstep that was filled with journals from a paranormal investigator who secretly works here in Nevermore Hollows. A handwritten note gave me permission to share the chilling stories recorded in those journals, and tonight I have chosen to share with you one that he calls The Case of the Cadaver Dolls. I believe that you will be just as disturbed as I was. So I asked you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. It was just after midnight, and I stood in an alley beside Sheriff Mosley. The strobe lights from his cruiser washed the scene in an alternating blue and red glow. In front of us stood a doll. It was about three feet tall, it was missing one of its hands, and the front of its dress was covered in blood. What do you think? Mosley asked. It's creepy as hell, I said. Mosley removed his Stetson and wiped sweat from his brow. He was fifty, beefy, and no nonsense. The terrible things he'd seen as a soldier paled in comparison to the nightly horror he witnessed as sheriff in Nevermore Hollows. Yeah, it is. You call Alyssa? I nodded. We heard a car approaching. We turned to see Alyssa Hart pull up at the opening of the alley. Alyssa is the coroner for Nevermore Hollows, and instead of driving a black van like her colleagues, she chooses to drive her powder blue 66 VW bus. She got out and walked over to us. Gentlemen, she said, brushing a strand of red hair behind her ear. What are we looking at? Mosley had a grim look on his face. Not sure. One of my deputies found this while she was on patrol. Looks like some kind of sick statement. I glanced at the doll. It looked familiar. I already don't like the message. 
I squatted down in front of the grisly doll. Mosley handed me a flashlight, and I began my inspection. Okay, it's missing its left hand. There's blood all over the front of its dress, and there's a word carved into its forehead. What's the word? Mosley asked. I leaned closer. Baphomet. What's a Baphomet? Mosley asked. I looked up and said, Baphomet is part human, part goat, all demon. Damn, he said. No offense, but I was hoping we wouldn't need your services. None taken, I replied. See, my name is Tiberius Poe. I'm a private detective who specializes in cases where logic and reason cannot be applied. I get called in when other detectives peek behind the dark veil and lose their minds. Check if that's real blood splatter, Alyssa said. I shine the light on the dress. I don't think it's splatter. I think it's bleeding from the doll through the dress. Alyssa had brought her medical bag. She sat it on the ground and fished out a pair of scissors. She squatted beside me and cut the dress away from the doll. Okay, this just keeps getting stranger. Alyssa had been the coroner for Nevermore Hollows for 20 years. She'd arrived at 28, hoping to lead a peaceful life and bring as much dignity to death as was possible. Her first night on the job, she'd gotten a hard lesson about the twisted truth of the town when she was attacked by an old witch named Granny Dingo. That encounter left her with scars to her arms and neck, however... Instead of running away to another town, Alyssa decided to stay and fight. She has seen the disturbing and the bizarre, so if she said it was strange, you needed to prepare yourself. Mosley leaned closer. Stitches? he asked. The doll's head, arms, and legs were carved wood and exquisitely painted. The torso was cloth stuffed with filler, wrapped around what I guessed was a wooden frame. From throat to groin, the doll was raggedly sewn together with thick black thread. Blood was seeping from that jagged wound. Yes, Alyssa said. This is a Y incision, like I would do when performing an autopsy. Seems like someone wants us to cut it open, Mosley said. I held the light while Alyssa sliced away the thread. When the last stitch was severed, the cavity opened up and a human hand fell out onto the ground. Shit, said Mosley. It was a woman's hand and had been roughly amputated, with splintered bone protruding from the stub. I looked back at the doll's face. Does it look familiar to either of you? Mosley and Alyssa scrutinized the doll's blonde hair and blue eyes. Someone had painted a delicate splash of freckles across the nose in a very distinct pattern. After a heartbeat, Alyssa said, It's Jennifer Hinckley. Alyssa was correct. Someone had created a doll to look like one of the reporters at the Nevermore Gazette. Mosley snatched his radio and ordered deputies to Jennifer's home. As we waited for them to report back, I wandered around the alley looking for further clues while Alyssa continued to inspect the doll in the hand. Ten minutes later, 
A deputy called Mosley with an update. Mosley hung up and said, Jennifer is dead. Her left hand is missing, and Deputy Morgan states the scene is pretty unsettling. Alyssa turned to me. If Mosley is right and this is a statement, what do you make of it? The way this is all staged says a lot, I said. But considering it's not very clear, I'd say we've been given the serial killer version of a teaser trailer. So, this is just to whet our appetites, Alyssa said. You're thinking we'll get more from the scene at Jennifer's home? I nodded. I think the real statement about who or what we're dealing with will be there. Jane and Kevin, Alyssa's assistants, pulled up, followed by Haley Madison, Nevermore's only detective. We left them to bag and tag the evidence. Alyssa rode with Mosley and I followed in my 71 blazer. It took us 15 minutes to make it across town to Jennifer's house. There were two cruisers parked out front. The deputies had already secured the scene and stood on the sidewalk. It's bad, Deputy Morgan said. He was new to the force. He looked as if he were barely holding it together. What you're going to see in there is sick. I know that Nevermore Hollows is a nexus for the paranormal and the twisted, and that dark and terrible things happen here. But I got my start as a private detective ten years ago while I lived in Hollywood. The things that happen behind the scenes there makes you want to burn that town to the ground. So I doubted I would be shocked. I was wrong. We found Jennifer in her home office slumped back in a chair behind her desk. She was missing her right hand and had an expensive fountain pen protruding from her forehead. She'd been stabbed so many times that I couldn't count all the wounds. Blood splattered the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the desk. Scrawled in blood on the wall behind her was the word Baphomet. Elissa's hazel eyes were full of pity for Jennifer. She was a good woman. She wrote about the culture and she cared about people. She didn't deserve this. The killer thought she did, I replied. This level of violence suggests hate for this woman. Mosley walked around the room, trying not to get blood on his tan uniform, taking in every detail. She definitely pissed off someone, he said. The spray on the wall behind her is from when the killer was stabbing her and slinging blood around, Alyssa said. But beyond that, this splattering everywhere else doesn't make sense. I looked down at the gore on the hardwood floors. It was smeared from the killer's footprints but the smears were in chaotic swirls. The killer was dancing. What? Mosley said. He grimaced as he viewed the scene with a new perspective. You sure? I nodded. Yes. My guess is that Jennifer was first stabbed in the neck with that pin, severing her artery. As the blood sprayed, the killer began repeatedly stabbing her, taking moments to dance and sling the blood everywhere. That would explain the crazy splatter on the walls and the ceiling and these smears on the floor. Lord, help us, Alyssa said. I think you're right. I see it. And they scrawled that word again, Mosley said. What's the significance? I was beginning to form a theory. 
The first time I heard Baphomet was when I was working as a P.I. in Hollywood, I said. You'd be surprised at how many folks out there worship him. He's a demon who grants fame to his followers, but his price is a human sacrifice. You think this has something to do with Hollywood? Alyssa said. No, I replied, but I do think our killer wants to be famous. Mosley scratched at his chin. And Jennifer was their sacrifice? Yes, I said, and I think her missing hand and the pen sticking from her forehead are clues as to why the killer chose her. How so? Mosley asked. She's a reporter. I think she wrote something our killer didn't like. The killer retaliated by cutting off her writing hand and stabbing her with a pen. We find out what she wrote. We find out who the killer is. Mosley called Haley and told her to check the Nevermore Gazette's website for Jennifer's most recent articles. Alyssa bit her lower lip as she considered the information. Do you think this scene is another teaser? Unfortunately, yes, I replied. I believe the Kilder is building us up for a big reveal. We're dealing with a very twisted person. Just then, Mosley's phone rang. He answered and said, Damn. He hung up and shook his head. There's another doll. It was nearing 2 a.m. when we arrived at the Pink Flamingos trailer park, which sits five miles outside of Nevermore. It's inhabited by the forlorn and the freaks. There's a gaudy sign that sits at the entrance with two flamingos and the name of the park outlined in pink and teal neon. Some of the letters burn brighter, spelling out In Flames Trailer Park. Standing at the base of the sign, washed in the pink and teal neon glow, was the second doll. It was dressed like a priest. We walked up to Ivan Ivanovich, the park's live-in custodian. It was hard to guess his age. He looked a fit fifty, but I sensed he was older. I was making my rounds and saw this, Ivan said to Mosley when we walked up. I called you when I saw the blood. Mosley thanked him, and Alyssa and I examined the doll. This one was different from the other in its construction in that it had a hinged jaw, which allowed the mouth to open and close. Blood dripped over the wooden lips and down the chin and stained the priest's collar. I think you need to send a car to Father Sergio's residence, I said. This doll looks like him. Mosley used his radio and sent a car to the Weeping Prophet Catholic Church. Elissa snapped on a pair of latex gloves and gave me a grim look. I nodded and she gently opened the mouth. A human tongue was lodged inside. I expect there's no need to rush, she said. I bet Father Sergio is dead. And I'm not completely convinced we aren't dealing with two killers. I had already come to that conclusion, but I wanted to know if she got there the same route that I did. Why? The hand and the tongue were both freshly amputated. It's clear Jennifer was killed in her home no more than two hours ago. I bet we'll find that Father Sergio was killed in about the same time frame. It seems impossible that the killer would have had time to do all this without help. I agreed with her assessment. 
We gotta stop these bastards, Mosley said. I don't like it when bodies start piling up. He called Haley, who told him that she and Jane and Kevin had just finished with the scene in the alley. He sent Haley to the church and Jane to process the scene at Jennifer's house. He told Kevin to come to the park. Alyssa stood and looked at Ivan. We can't collect this until Kevin gets here and works the scene. I hate to ask, but can you secure the area for a bit? Ivan said he would. All three of us had helped him with some particularly strange paranormal events that had happened here at the trailer park. None of us knew his story, but we all sensed he spent time in the Russian military. Either way, he had earned our trust. We left the scene with him and headed back into town. The rectory sat 50 yards back from the church. Father Sergio Castillo had been living there since being assigned here two years ago. Haley was calmly waiting for us. Being one of the few who knew what really goes on in this wicked little town, she was not easily shaken. I've looked around the property, she said. I can't see anything amiss at the church, but the door to the rectory is standing open. The four of us headed to the front door and stepped inside. The house was dark except for a light coming from a room down the hall. We pulled our guns and made our way toward the lighted room. Mosley was the first to peek inside. It's clear, he said, but his tone was grave. We stepped inside Father Sergio's study. It was humble in decoration and furnishings. Two walls were lined with bookshelves, and everything was splattered with his blood. I noticed the gore on the floor was smeared in the same chaotic swirls that we'd found at Jennifer's house. The killer had been dancing. One of the paintings was a landscape. Baphomet was scrawled in blood across a field of flowers. Father Sergio was sprawled at his desk, mouth agape showing the ragged stub of his severed tongue. On the floor lay a pair of shears that I recognized. He'd loved roses, growing them in a garden behind the rectory. I'd seen him use those shears to prune his beloved flowers. This scene gave more weight to my theory. He was killed for something he said. Mosley nodded, grimacing at the carnage. Yeah, that's a solid theory. He turned to Haley. I need you to find out what that might have been. I'd start with his most recent sermons. I'll call Lois, his secretary, she said. She'll know. Alyssa thoughtfully bit her lower lip, her eyes taking in every detail. I'll process this scene myself. Mosley and I stepped outside to give her space. We stood between the rectory and the church. Mosley instinctively rested his right hand on his holstered weapon. Let's recap what we think is going on. Two killers, I said, worshippers of Baphomet. Jennifer was killed for what she wrote, Sergio for what he said. They are not only killing for revenge, but as a sacrificial offering to Baphomet, hence the dancing in the blood. They use dolls that resemble their victims, and these types of dolls are called puppet dolls, as most people know them, voodoo dolls. I'm going out on a limb and say, we're dealing with a couple of teenage girls, most likely witches. Mosley sighed in disgust. 
used to never hear stuff like this happening with kids. I bet we're going to find that Jennifer and Sergio both have taken a stance against something recently that made these girls mad, I said. Mosley considered this information for a moment. Most killers don't want to call attention to themselves. Why all this? Do you really think they're going to just reveal to us who they are? I do, I said. I believe the murderers are extreme narcissists and their ultimate goal is fame. I know you don't want to hear this, but I think they recorded these murders. Damn, Mosley said. I noticed his hand squeezing the butt of his gun. I hope they don't post those videos. Haley came out of the rectory. I've got something. Lois states that Father Sergio gave a sermon on the increase of depression and suicide in young girls. He tied the increase to how social media is used to hypersexualize girls and give them an unrealistic standard for beauty and perfection. And get this, Jennifer published an article on the same topic. That's the connection, Mosley said. But why did that get them killed? What are we missing? I'd also been trying to make that connection. I looked at Haley. Do you know if Sergio called out any specific social media site or influencer by name in that sermon? Haley shook her head. Lois said that he did not. He called out the effects of these sites but didn't single out any one influencer. Okay, I said. But the fact that he and Jennifer both touched on the subject in the same week isn't a coincidence. I wonder if they coordinated their efforts. I bet they did, Mosley said. I saw them together a couple of weeks ago having lunch at Winona's. Let's check his computer for notes and anything else that may shed some light. As we made our way back to the blood-splattered study, Haley again called Lois. She asked for the password to Sergio's computer and if he and Jennifer had coordinated their message. When she ended the call, she said, They were definitely working together. In fact, a couple of months ago, they started a program here at the church to help young girls who suffer from depression and negative self-image. When they interviewed these girls, every single one of them had a social media addiction. Jennifer and Sergio decided to begin a campaign to make everyone aware of how toxic social media is, especially for girls. That jibes, I said as I checked Father Sergio's calendar. They met at Winona's to discuss a site called the Vane Sisters. That would be Tiffany and Miley Vane, Haley said. They're twins, 15 years old. I had a run-in with them a while back when I suspected they were casting some pretty nasty spells against the Hitchcock High Cheer team. So, I was correct in thinking we were dealing with witches. I checked Sergio's browsing history. During his research, he'd spent a lot of time on one of the new social media sites that had gone viral. Every link he viewed showed provocatively dressed girls giving terrible advice on how to be more beautiful and desirable. The channel he visited the most on this site belonged to Tiffany and Miley Vane. Their content was centered around the sisters, dressed seductively in goth attire, speaking about beauty and witchcraft and sex. That their real names? I asked. Yes, said Haley. They named the channel the Vane Sisters, Mosley said. Seems fitting. I clicked on a video that I felt would give us some clarity. This one is titled, For All the Haters. 
The video showed the Vane sisters dressed in their skimpy goth attire with dark eye shadow and jet black hair pulled up in pigtails. They were furious about some negative comments one of their videos, titled How to Use Sex Magic to Be Successful, had gotten. I clicked on the link to that video. Let's take a look. In it, Miley explained how to take power over others by using sex and witchcraft. Tiffany added that some girls were so ugly that no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much black magic they used, they would never be successful, and that they should just go ahead and commit suicide. Enough of that garbage, Mosley said. Look and see if Jennifer or Sergio left comments. I see two that call out the Vane sisters for this terrible advice, I said. One is from Reporter Jen, and the other from F. Sergio1980. Both shared a link along with their comments directing the viewers to a website. I pulled up the site. It was for the program Sergio and Jennifer had founded. It was called The Social Club. The main page stated the mission was for girls to come together free of toxic superficiality of social media and form meaningful relationships and healthier understandings of beauty standards. The site also listed Father Sergio and Jennifer Hinckley as the founders. Well, that's what got them killed, I said. The Vane sisters saw this as a direct attack. These girls are sick. Haley said. Telling girls to embrace sexuality and witchcraft is terrible advice. I then clicked on the most recent video. In it, the Vane sisters told their one million subscribers that their upcoming videos would be disturbing, but proved that it was possible that if you were sexy enough and were willing to make sacrifices, you could get away with murder. Clearly, the sacrifices to which they referred were the murders of Sergio and Jennifer. It was also clear that these wicked little girls were planning on releasing the videos of the murders. I had no doubt that when they did, their subscriber count would explode. However, even though our culture had devolved into a massive cult that worshipped youth and vanity, the vain sisters' faith in their fleeting physical beauty would not be enough to keep them from justice. I would personally see to that. I continued to read about the social club. It says here they hired Kate Lee to be their director. Kate's teenage daughter, Amber, killed herself a few months back. Kate was very vocal about the toxicity of social media and felt it played a role in her daughter's suicide. They will be going after her next, Haley said. She turned and headed toward the door. If they haven't killed her already, Mosley said. We ran outside. Mosley and Haley jumped in their cars and tore off to Kate's residence. I followed in my blazer. It was nearing 3 a.m. when we pulled up in front of her house. There were no lights on inside. Mosley and Haley ran up onto the porch, and I shot around back. There was a faint glow coming from a back window. I crept up to the back door and tried the knob. It was unlocked. I pulled my gun and stepped into the kitchen. To my right was a breakfast nook. On the center of the table, surrounded by flickering candles, stood another puppet doll, painted to look like Kate. The front of its blouse was unbuttoned, revealing a ragged hole carved into the chest. To my left, a dark hallway. Three doors, all closed. One had a soft glow escaping from beneath. I heard crying and pleading coming from that room. 
I assumed it was Kate. I crept toward the door. I could hear a girl's voice speaking under Kate's urgent pleading. "'Shh!' the girl said. "'There's no reason to cry. "'What's about to happen is the way things should be.' "'Tiffany, please, stop,' Kate said. "'Please, why are you doing this?' "'You worked with that reporter and that priest,' Tiffany replied. "'And they said some terrible things about me and my sister. "'Besides,' You gave birth to that ugly cow of a daughter. It took us forever to convince her to kill herself. My hesitation was not out of fear, but my need to determine if both sisters were in the room. It's best to get as good a threat assessment as possible before barging in. I glanced over my shoulder. The house was dark, and I sensed no movement. Molly had to be in the room, taking part, possibly recording. Kate's sobbing abruptly stopped. What did you say? she asked. Are, 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 you, are you saying you bullied my daughter until she killed herself? Tiffany giggled. Yes, silly. We have to make room for the pretty people. I remembered seeing Amber's photo in the paper after her suicide. She had been lovely with a genuine smile and a sparkle in her eyes. It was a shame that she had let these two disciples of Baphomet cast such doubt in her mind. Kate's fear was replaced with righteous anger. You are evil, and you will both pay for this. Tiffany giggled. I doubt that. You see, I cut out Father Sergio's tongue for what he said in his sermon, and Miley cut off that bitch's hand for what she wrote. It's your broken heart that led you to join them. So, that's what I need to remove from you. You're sick, Kate said. Why are you recording this? We're making the world a prettier place. And we're showing our one million fans how to help. Oh, Lord, Kate said. You're going to post these videos? Yes, we are. And our fans will see it as a call to action. They will help us cull out you ugly cows, and the boldness of our actions will increase our subscribers a hundred times over and make us famous. Now, shut up and let me cut out your heart. I promise to go slow. I couldn't tell if both the Vane sisters were in the room, but I couldn't wait any longer. I kicked in the door, brought up my gun, ready to fire, praying it wouldn't be necessary. Kate was tied to a chair. Tiffany standing over her, wearing a black dress, black boots, black hair and pigtails, eager smile on her black lips. A razor-sharp chef's knife held high. Miley, not in the room. No time to glance over my shoulder. Tiffany didn't even look at me. She slammed the knife down. I squeezed off a shot. The bullet pinged off the blade, knocking it out of her hand. She screamed and pulled her stinging hand close. Another scream. From behind me, it was Miley. I turned too slowly. She held a wicked, sharp carving knife. She stabbed me in the side, just under my ribs. I felt no pain, only pressure, too much adrenaline. The pain would come later. I brought the butt of my gun down against her forehead, dazing her. She stumbled back, cupping her face in her hands. I noticed she was dressed exactly as her sister with one exception. Her lips were painted bright red. Tiffany screamed. Not her face! 
She snatched her knife from the floor with her left hand and ran at me. Rage contorted her face into a malignant sneer. I kicked her in the stomach, knocking her against the wall. Miley growled like a demon. She grabbed my hair and yanked. My neck popped as she pulled me off balance. I nearly fell, but didn't. She stabbed the carving knife into my back once, twice. I felt sticky blood pouring from the wounds. I didn't want to kill two teenage girls, no matter how evil they were, but they were definitely making my reluctance difficult. I twisted and punched Miley hard in the temple. She fell to her knees. Tiffany jumped on my back, clawing at my face, trying to get to my eyes. I slammed back against the wall, crushing the air out of her. Her grip loosened and she fell to the floor. Both girls were down, dazed. Just then, Mosley and Haley ran through the door, guns ready. They took in the scene and quickly cuffed the girls. Haley then set about cutting Kate free. Mosley looked at the blood pouring from my stab wounds and called an ambulance. I was lightheaded from the loss of blood, standing only because my body was high on adrenaline. They're recording, I croaked. Mosley nodded his understanding. Over there, he said, pointing to a digital camera that had been set on a shelf. It was pointed toward Kate, and the recording light burned red. I could hear the sirens of the ambulance. Haley led me to the chair Kate had been tied to and began assessing my wounds. Kate grabbed some towels from the bathroom across the hall and tried to stop the bleeding. I looked over at the Vane sisters. Both were cuffed with hands behind their backs. They were sitting on the floor against the wall. Tiffany was looking at the nasty bruise that I had left on Miley's face. It's okay, Miley. It's just a bruise. The skin isn't broken, and I don't think the bone is fractured. Thank Baphomet, Miley said, tears welling up in her eyes. I'm not ready to die. Even through the haze of blood loss, I understood Miley to mean that if I had left any permanent marring of her face, that she would have killed herself. A few minutes later, the paramedics arrived and strapped me to a gurney. They started an IV and packed my wounds and wheeled me out into the muggy night. A half dozen patrol cars washed the scene in flashes of crimson and blue. Alyssa was standing at the ambulance next to Marlene, my secretary. I was not surprised to see Marlene because she was always showing up unexpectedly. She was an odd girl with thick nerd glasses who was always reading a horror novel. She had walked into my office last Halloween and told me that she was there to take care of me. She always called me by my given name and until a couple of weeks ago, I had not paid her a dime, though I did buy her tacos on the day that she didn't bring lunch. As usual, Marlene did not sugarcoat her assessment of the situation. You got beat up by a couple girls. One of the paramedics had administered morphine, and I was riding high. Reminds me of my school days. What should we name this case? Alyssa asked, laughing. Marlene had taken to naming my cases for me, stating that a shocking title would guarantee that people would want to read my memoirs whenever I decided to write them. Marlene smiled. As usual, I was reminded of a mischievous cat. Easy, she replied. We should call this one Tiberius Poe and the Case of the Cadaver Dolls. How does that sound to you, Tiberius? I knew that I did not really have a say in the matter, 
so I shrugged. Alyssa and Marlene shared a dark sense of humor and were becoming close friends. Alyssa laughed again. I like it. Bold and lurid, though a bit misleading. Mosley walked up, Haley trailing behind. The girls confessed to recording the murders, he said. And you were correct, Poe. They worship this Baphomet demon, and they identify as witches. I don't get it, Alyssa said. Posting those videos would be all the evidence we needed to throw them in prison for the rest of their lives. How would this have been a win for them? Our core values are no longer humility and self-control, Marlene said. Now it's all about vanity and vice and shock value. People sick out this twisted type of content, and the Vane sisters are products of this new reality. They are narcissists who will do anything for fame. So, you're saying that these girls believe it's worth the risk of prison to increase their subscriber count? Alyssa asked. Yes, Marlene said, because they would have become famous. There was a quiet moment where we all considered the state of this fallen world. Then, Mosley said, There's fewer folks like us every day, isn't there? No one replied because the answer was obvious. Finally, one of the paramedics said, We need to get him to the hospital. Marlene made it clear to the objecting paramedics that she would ride with me, and the last thing I saw as they slid me into the ambulance was a couple deputies putting the handcuffed Vane sisters into a cruiser. Three weeks later, I stood beside Dr. Sledgeboom, the director of Morningstar Sanitarium. Tiffany and Miley had been given over to his care when their lawyer convinced a judge that the girls needed psychiatric evaluation instead of incarceration. We watched the girls from across the room. They sat at a table directly in the center of the commons area. I was surprised to see that they had been given a makeup kit to share. Miley was applying a smear of crimson lipstick. Tiffany's choice was raven black. I can assure you, Mr. Poe, that these girls are suffering from psychopathy and extreme vanity disorder. They had no real control over their actions. They are simply insane. I knew better. Insanity is an unfortunate medical condition. Wickedness is a willful act in service to evil. And wickedness in its purest form can seem like insanity. What about the Baphomet worship? I asked. Sledgeboom was a short, arrogant man who wore round-rimmed glasses. Surely, Mr. Poe, you aren't suggesting that demons are real. There's no such thing. And if I were to give testimony in court pertaining to their worship of Baphomet, I'd just explain that it was an expression of their desire to be perfectly beautiful. I knew that I'd gain nothing from arguing with him. His own vanity in the guise of arrogance blinded him to the truth that evil is an entity that manifests itself in myriad ways in its war against humanity. The girls finished applying their lipstick. Miley leaned over and whispered into Tiffany's ear. Tiffany looked at me and said, Come closer. We have a secret. I glanced at Sledgeboom and was surprised when he said, Go ahead. I'll be in my office if you need me. 
He left the commons area, and I walked over to the girls. They looked up at me, Tiffany giving me a raven-black pout and Miley flashing a crimson sneer. What is it? I asked. Miley giggled. We know who you are, Mr. Poe. Tiffany chuckled. We're going to be out of here really soon, and we will dance in your blood. I considered her threat. I'd fought witches and warlocks, shapeshifters and demons, all manifestations of original evil that wages war against humanity. And though I have many scars, I'm not afraid, because there is also a supreme goodness that works to save us all, and it has called me into this war and has thus far sustained me. So, with faith of continued victory, I stepped into the golden rays of the morning sun, and I was at peace.